First Samuel with me. This is a great passage this morning, folks. Um, so I'm looking forward to um, walking through this with you. Last week we began in First Samuel with an intimate look at Hannah and her plight and how God remembered her by answering her prayer and giving her a son. Um, we also saw how in response she gave up Samuel back to God and dedicated him to the Lord's service. And we sort of imagined through that what that must have been like for her. Um, she was a woman who lived in a culture where um, not being able to have a child was, uh, brought shame. Now that was not God, that was the community and the culture she was in that brought the shame and the ridicule to her. And so um, you remember um, her husband had married another woman which was permissible by their culture. Again, it wasn't something that that God had intended, but it was something that their culture permitted. And so he had married another woman for the purpose of providing children. And she was uh, quite fruitful, if you will. Um, It says that she had many sons and daughters. And um, she would ridicule Hannah, mock her, um, partly probably out of spite because she probably didn't have the love of her husband like Hannah did. The text indicated that Hannah was, in many respects, his favorite, his first wife. Um, so she might have been ridiculing Hannah out of spite, but she was also just shaming her because that's what culture did. And so we saw Hannah was was pretty miserable. Year after year after year, she would go up to the temple and um, would weep, would pray, and would ask God to remember her. And we saw that he actually did that, and then she turned around and fulfilled her obligation in um, presenting Samuel back to the temple. We find ourselves today in chapter 2, which is a psalm of rejoicing. It's Hannah's response after she had delivered Samuel back to the temple. And what's interesting about this is there's three specific passages of Scripture that are all very similar and they're related. One of them you might remember from Luke chapter 1, after um, Mary is reflecting upon um, God's promise to deliver her with a son. We refer to that as Mary's Magnificat. It's a psalm of praise. It's in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Um, This chapter that we're looking at today has some interesting parallels (coughs) to that. Um, They're both from women rejoicing and thanksgiving and providing thanksgiving. They have a lot in common with each other in that they're both barren, or they didn't, I mean, in Mary's case, she wasn't necessarily barren, but she was provided a child that she didn't expect. They both include themes of deliverance and salvation, God's holiness, his sovereignty, his mercy towards the humble, and his judgment against the proud. And so we're going to see some of that today. But there's a third passage, and it actually comes from David in 2 Samuel chapter 22 that we would refer to in some respects as David's Magnificat. It's another psalm of praise. And what's interesting about that is there's the same basic themes. And so when you look at these three passages of Scripture, they have a lot of things in common. And I don't think that's, um, I think that's by design. I don't think it's just a happenstance. Hannah's psalm and David's, in some respect, serve as bookends to this book. In other words, this um, psalm of praise in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel is one bookend, and then David's psalm in 2 Samuel 22 is the other bookend. Kind of holds up the, the book from beginning to end, if you will. And there are these themes within there that help us to not just interpret the book as a whole, or the two books, First and Second Samuel, but in some respects understand the Old Testament in its entirety. I'd like to point out three of these today. We're going to see three specific themes, if you will, in Hannah's psalm of praise. And again, you see those reflected in David and Mary's as well. 
The first is that the Lord saves. The second is that the Lord opposes the proud, but exalts the humble. The third one is that the Lord protects his people, but destroys those who oppose him. So again, the Lord saves, the Lord opposes the proud, but exalts the humble, and then the Lord protects his people, but destroys those who oppose him. That's going to make the outline for our text today. Let's look at the first part of it. The first two verses of 1 Samuel chapter 2 read like this. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There was no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. The Lord saves. That's Hannah's point here. It's interesting that Hannah's rejoicing, David's psalm, and Mary's magnificent all begin with a reflection on God's deliverance and salvation. Go look at those yourself. They all begin with a declaration that God is a God who saves. Hannah says this, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. David says it this way in the first verse of his psalm in chapter 22 of 2 Samuel. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. Mary, in the very first verse of her psalm, says this, My soul exalts in the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. I grew up in the Catholic tradition, which taught that Mary was sinless. I don't know how they get past this passage, because Mary calls Jesus her Savior. She was sinless, she didn't need a Savior. All three of these passages start out with a declaration that God is a God who saves. Is it interesting that that is a major theme of the Old and New Testament? We just went through the book of Romans, and isn't that the point of Romans? That God has a redemptive plan for mankind? So it's no wonder that these three individuals all start their song with praise with the concept that God is a God who saves. The overarching theme of the Bible is just that. It reveals God as Savior. In fact, it starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, doesn't it? Remember the fall? We have what's, and you've heard me use this phrase before, we have what's called the proto-evangelon, which is when God looks at, looks at uh, Satan and says it is heavily crushed by the seed of the woman. That's a reference to Christ. So God's salvific plan begins in Genesis chapter 3, and then we see that all the way throughout the Old and New Testament. Give some examples just briefly here of how that works out. We not only have the salvation declared in Genesis 3, but you think about what God did through Noah. Think about what God did at the Tower of Babel. That was an act of salvation. Man would have destroyed himself again and God not spread them. They didn't learn from the flood, and so God scattered them at Babel to protect them. He rescued Jacob, Joseph, and his brother from famine. He saved the Jews from the Egyptians. He protected them in the wilderness. He saved them from their enemies in Canaan when they went through the conquest. He delivered them time and time and time again throughout the period of the judges, throughout the period of the kings. He then preserved them in their captivity in Babylon, delivered them back to the land, protected them there. And then ultimately in the New Testament, you see him sending Jesus Christ, the God-man, to save people from their sins. There's a redemptive plan throughout the whole of their Old and New Testament that reveals God as Savior in these three Psalms start that way. 
That's probably the most significant theme that you find in the scriptures. God is the God who saves. In Hannah's case here, when we go back to that, the Lord's salvation was temporal in nature. What I mean by that is sort of earthly. He delivered her from barrenness, and he provided her with a child, and as a result, it caused her to rejoice. She says, my heart exalts in the Lord. The Lord's deliverance brought her inner joy, if you will. She says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. Lord, that means it gave her strength. This idea of the horn being exalted, the horns used metaphorically to refer to power or strength, usually. And so when someone says their horn is lifted high or exalted by the Lord, it's a reference to being raised up and strengthened by him, giving him or giving that person power or strength. And that's definitely true in Hannah's case. Remember, for probably what looks like maybe 20 years, two decades, she was being tormented, ridiculed by Penina, her husband's other wife, probably by the culture and the, and the society, other women around her. And can you imagine dealing with that for 20 years? Constantly? And then to make matters worse, you go to the temple and you, and you, you pray to God and you ask Him to help and you might sense that it doesn't quite feel like He's answering that prayer because every year it's kind of a no. But then ultimately, in the end, God provides her what she's asked for. Lifts her shame, if you will, from the culture and society around her. Gives her a child. Um... Imagine the strength and encouragement that would come from that. And so she says, my horn's been exalted. God has lifted me up. He's given me strength, endurance now. She says, my mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. So now she has boldness. You know, what's interesting about this is she doesn't mention her enemies um, by name here. But who do you suppose she's referring to when she says, my mouth speaks boldly against my enemies? Think they have a name? <laughs> Probably Benina. Probably those that are ridiculing and mocking her. This just goes to her character. She's gentle and gracious. She simply refers to them as her enemies, but doesn't call them out by name. What's interesting in this as well is Hannah, as she's speaking about God's deliverance and, and that for her, she refers to two aspects of God's character that's specifically um, tied to his salvation work. The first one is his holiness. Look at verse 2. It says, There is no one holy like the, like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you. When God saves, it manifests his holiness, doesn't it? What Hannah's alluding to. It's because he's holy that he actually saves. You know, when, when God's creation is struggling because they're unable to save themselves, it's because he is holy. That in some respects, he's obligated himself to provide a solution and to save. Again, it's because he's holy. That's what a holy God does. The second facet of that is security. Notice he said it in the second half of verse 2. There's no rock like our God. What's interesting, interesting about this is that God is referred to oftentimes in the Bible as a rock. In Psalms alone, it's 20 times that he's referred to as a rock. In most of those instances, that metaphor of a rock is tied specifically in that same context to deliverance or salvation. Which means that oftentimes when the psalmists reflect on God's deliverance, it uses the metaphor of a rock because with that deliverance comes security, stability. Don't we see the same thing in the New Testament? We just got through going through Romans, and one of the things Paul says in Romans chapter 12, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter 8, is that um, there's nothing that can tear us out of God's hands. Neither height nor depth. Nor, and he goes through this diatribe in some respects that we are secure in Christ. 
So not only are we saved, but we now have security. We refer to it, theological phrase, eternal security. Once you're saved, you're always saved, not because of what you do, but because of what God does and because of his character. He is a rock. And so as Hannah reflects upon this God who saves in the first part of her psalm, she cannot help but reflect upon the fact that that brings security as well for the one who loves the Lord. So she ties holiness and security to God's salvation. That's what makes him who he is. Now, as I kind of mentioned at the beginning of this, Hannah's words here lay the theological foundation through which we're to really experience the rest of this book in the Old Testament as a whole. Think about this. In the years prior to Samuel's birth, Israel experienced God's deliverance time and time and time again, didn't they? I mean, they were constantly having to be saved. It's like a, a child who constantly gets himself or herself in trouble with dad and mom's got to bail him out. In the opening chapters of this book, we see God deliver them once again from the Philistines, don't we? They were being oppressed by the Philistines. In the same way, we look at them and we see how their priests were oppressing them. The judges were terrible judges, and God had to deliver them once again and provide them with a good judge in Samuel. When we look at the lives of the first two kings, David, um, we see the stark contrast between them and how they either relied upon or rejected God's salvation and deliverance. Think about Saul. It was all about himself, wasn't it? kind of rejected God's deliverance and salvation in their respect. And then you see David, who's desperate for it. And so we can see within this first psalm here, this reflection on God being a God who saves. And again, that's a theme we see throughout the whole, whole Old Testament, the whole New Testament, and that's reflected in, in this psalm right off the bat, something that Hannah recognized. What we're going to find as we go through the book is that that theme will continue to come up. It will be the lens through which we interpret many of the events. Let's go on to the second theme. The second theme is found in verse three through, verses 3 through 8. And that's that the Lord opposes the proud but exalts the humble. The Lord opposes the proud but exalts the humble. Let's look at verses 3 through 8. And it says, Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to shale and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. The second major theological theme here is that the Lord opposes the proud but exalts the humble. And it starts with a warning. Notice again, she says, Boast no more very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is knowledgeable. And with his act, or I'm sorry, with him actions are waiting. You're probably familiar with the idiom, pride comes before the fall. How many are familiar with that? Pride, it comes from actually Saul, Proverbs chapter 16. It reads like this. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. So we've shortened that to pride comes before the fall. 
many people attribute that to karma. You just sort of get what's coming to you, but the scriptures actually associate that with the way that God works. Hannah says here, the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. Basically what Hannah's getting at here is that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Hannah first describes the different fates of the arrogant and the humble. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. It says, The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. That's a wordplay there. Basically saying that those who are strong aren't really all that mighty, and those who aren't all that mighty are strong when it comes to how God associates with them. It says in verse 5, Those who are full meaning having everything they need, ultimately in the end have to hire themselves out for a loaf of bread. Reminds me of lottery winners. It's interesting when you look at the statistics of these lottery winners. Um, I don't remember exact details, but somewhere north of 80% of lottery winners are bankrupt within five years. They are worse off after winning the lottery than prior to winning the lottery. Don't know why that is. Got some assumptions. Um, it's interesting too to look at the. Um, I've got a guy that I work with who was a professional baseball player, got drafted out of his third year in college, um, had a contract for millions of dollars, started with the Cleveland Indians, um, ultimately injured his shoulder, lost his job, and now sells title insurance for us. And we were talking about this the other day how hard that is. To, to think, if I only had been able to play just a couple more years, I would have been set for life. But that led to a discussion on how many professional athletes who literally make millions and millions of dollars end up bankrupt. They just end up bankrupt. So those who have much often hire themselves out for bread, it says. Those who are hungry, she says in verse 5, cease to hunger, meaning their needs are met. There's another veiled reference here in verse 5, probably to Penina. Even the barren gives birth to seven. Who do you think that's referring to? Hannah. Um, seven is a number of perfection there, completeness. doesn't mean that she necessarily had seven kids. It's just um, that she'd be full, if you will. But she who has many children languishes. That's probably, again, a veiled reference to Penina. Um, it's interesting because 1 Samuel chapter 2 says that Hannah had at least five more kids. So God was gracious to her. She saw this come true in her own life, that this barren woman was not just given one child, but many. A quiver, if you will, a quiver full, the way the Bible describes it. She goes on, actually, in verses 6 and 7, um, to reveal that God is ultimately the one who does this. Notice she doesn't attribute this just to... Um, one's own abilities or perfections. And if you're just humble, then you'll be lifted up. No, she bases it all on how God works. Look at verses 6 through 8 again. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down the shale and rises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a sea of honor. Notice how many times God is referenced there. He brings down, he raises up. He makes poor and rich. He brings low. He exalts. He raises the poor. He lifts up the needy. It's all God. And it goes back to her primary statement there that ultimately it's the Lord who opposes the proud and exalts the humble. It's interesting. James chapter 4 verse 5 says this. 
that we are to, or that God also resists the proud. James is actually quoting from Proverbs 3 where he says, The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Though he scoffs at scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. The wise will inherit honor, but the fools display dishonor. Hannah saw that in her own life. There's no no question Hannah was a humble servant. We see that as the the way she's described and the way that she reflects. Even when when Eli confronts her in the temple, her response is gracious and kind in the way that she responds to him. She was a humble, humble woman. And we see in her own life how God took and exalted her and raised her up because of that. So we see that in the rest of the book as well because we see how he does that with Hannah and he also does that with Samuel. Samuel was likely the greatest judge that Israel ever had and probably the most humble one they've ever had. And so we see God use him tremendously for 40 years of life of Israel. In fact, it's interesting because when in the passage that we're going to get to a little bit later on, um, after God rejects Saul because of his disobedience, Samuel, we're told, is, is literally weeping over that. And God has to sort of grab old Samuel and say, Samuel, and kind of rebukes him mildly. He says, how long are you going to mourn over Saul? I rejected him. But you still see Samuel with this humble heart weeping over what had happened to Saul. Broke his heart. Because that's the kind of person that he was. He was humble, and God used that to lift him up. Again, made him probably the greatest judge that Israel had ever seen. See the same thing in David, don't we? Um, this man after God's own heart. Passage I was working on last night, First Samuel 16, reflecting on what it meant for David to be a man after God's own heart. It meant that he was humble and gracious and had God's desires in his mind and in his heart. Paul describes it in I think it's Acts 12 or Acts 22. I don't remember exactly that when God said that He sought a man after His own heart, it meant that He sought somebody who would do as well, do what He commanded. It requires humility. Setting aside one's own desires, and that's the way David is. So we see that played out in this book. So the second theme that Hannah reflects on here is that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's go on to the third and final theme that we see here. Second half of verse 8. It says, He raises the poor, I'll start with verse 8. He raises the poor from the dust, He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world upon them. Let me see this. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. What do we find in here? Well, it's the third principle. It's that the Lord protects his people, but he destroys those who oppose him. The Lord protects his people, but destroys those who oppose him. And look at what Hannah says here. For the pillars of the Lord are the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world upon them. That's reference really to God's sovereignty. That God has the right to protect his people, and he has the right to oppress those who come up against him. Remember when Job was asked by God, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. That begins a four-chapter dialogue where God establishes his right as divine sovereign over the earth and over Job, over his creation. That gave him the right to judge 
and to, remote, uh, to reward the motives and actions of man. So when, when um, Job is struggling with everything he was struggling with, um, for the most part maintaining his integrity, there was an issue because he was starting to question. And God basically says, Job, I have a right to do what I do. And I judge the motives of men, I raise up some, and I lower others, because I'm a judge who judges the heart of man. And that's exactly what we see here with Hannah, is as she reflects upon what God has done, she doesn't just reflect upon his salvation and the fact that he gives grace to the humble, but that he actually protects his people and then destroys those who oppose him. So she reflects on that as she contemplates God's protection of his people. Notice in verse 9 it says, He keeps the feet of his godly ones. That's a statement of protection. But the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The NET says, It's not by one's own strength that one prevails. Again, we have another theme that's repeated throughout the scriptures. Isaiah 41.10 says this, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 1 Thessalonians 3 says this, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Romans 8, we went through this. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How secure do you think that makes us? Think he covered all the bases there? In the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, he reflected on the Lord's ability to guard everything and to protect him all the way up to eternal life. Listen to this. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ to abolish death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things. And then listen to this. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What Paul hints at there is not just the salvation of God, but the fact that God will guard and protect him no matter what circumstances he faced. And remember, this is a man who was in prison facing death at this point. It's the last letter he wrote. And he says, I'm convinced that God's able to protect and trust everything I've entrusted to him. Paul had nothing to worry about. When I first got saved, I struggled myself, probably a good two years with eternal security. Because I was raised in an environment that taught, not so much that I had to earn my salvation because in, in the church that I was raised in, you were saved because you were baptized. You were saved because you were a part of the church. In fact, after I had committed my life to Christ, I went and sat down with a priest on campus and talked with him. And he literally looked at me and said, you don't need a personal relationship with Jesus. You were baptized. You're Catholic. You're okay. Well, I wasn't okay. I struggled because I... I was kind of raised, not so much by my parents, but in that theology that I kind of had to earn that, not so much to be saved, but to stay saved. In other words, 
if I was bad enough, I could lose my salvation. And I struggled with that because I knew I couldn't be good enough. And literally for two years, I struggled until I came across Romans 8. That basically says, there is nothing that can take it away because God can be trusted. He is faithful. Just as God protects those who love him, it says he also judges those who oppose him. Look at verse 10. Those who contend with the Lord, meaning those who come up against him, who oppose him, will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the earth or the ends of the earth. So that's another theme that we find in the scriptures is that God will destroy those who come up against him. In fact, we started off the book of Romans. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And God has that right to judge opposition. So we have this theme that is found throughout the scriptures that God will protect his people but at the same time destroy those who are in opposition to him and in opposition ultimately to his people. Think about what are we told about Israel in the Old Testament? God warned that those who oppose Israel ultimately pay a price. Now, that doesn't mean that you blindly just accept everything Israel does, but it means that you don't turn your back and, and, and ridicule and mock Israel when they're still God's people, whether they're in obedience or disobedience. You know, I love the fact that we have a, a current president and to some degree still an administration that recognizes that we need to support Israel. Um, ultimately, in the end, countries will pay a price for not doing that. Because God protects his people and destroys those who come up against him. Look at the very last verse here. And he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. Who do you suppose that's a reference to? Remember, we're in a book that's transitioning from judgeship in Israel individual tribes being governed by judges, and we're transitioning to a kingdom, a dynasty, if you will. And they've already, or haven't yet, but they will be selecting Saul as their king. So the assumption would be, oh, this is what he's going to, the king here is a reference to that, but that's just partial. This is ultimately a, refer, a reference and a reflection upon Christ. This is a um, prophetic statement regarding Christ. Because the rest of the scriptures indicate that God's favor will rest upon the king with a capital K, which is ultimately Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, that will ultimately sit on the throne. Psalm chapter 2 spells that all out, doesn't it? The reflection of God's king establishing his throne over all of the earth. So there's a, I'll call it a veiled reference, a foreshadowing here of Christ even in Hannah. And again, you make the comparison there between Hannah's psalm here and Mary's psalm. What does she do? Reflects on God my Savior, a reference to the Son, Jesus Christ, her child. Same thing here, the way that Hannah ends hers. And so ultimately, in the end, God will oppose those who come up against him and will protect those who love him, ultimately through his king, who we know to be Jesus Christ, our Savior. And isn't that really the way it works out? Because Jesus, when you think about it, doesn't just save us for all eternity. What does he, what does he do? What is his final place, if you will? 
he takes a literal throne, sits on a literal earthly throne for a thousand years on this earth and governs and directs from Israel. It happens right before we go off into eternity. And so we see that already being fulfilled, if you will, as you look through the book of Revelation and see what God has in store for his king. And so we've got this veiled reference here, whatever this foreshadowing of his ultimate king, Jesus Christ, and then he will exalt his horn. So, what do we, what do, we do with all of this? As I kind of mentioned, um, these three theological themes sort of set the stage for this book, and so as we go through the rest of these chapters, we'll see these themes being repeated throughout this book, and it becomes sort of a lens that we see it through. But there's something else that's kind of interesting about this. Um, I've been constantly amazed at how clearly the gospel is foreshadowed in the Old Testament. The, the more I grow in Christ, and the longer I've been saved, and the more I, the more I continue to study, um, I am just more and more convinced and amazed at how clear, if you will, the gospel is presented in the Old Testament, even though it's somewhat veiled. Even Paul reflects on that in the New Testament that this is a mystery that's fully revealed in him. But when you take that and you go back in the Old Testament, it's amazing how you see the gospel reflected there, much like we just saw with the reference to Christ. You might ask me, well, how? Well, think about this for a second. You could share the gospel from this psalm alone. You might say, well, how? Well, first off, God saves. Okay? Hannah reflects on that. God is a God who saves. That's the gospel, is it not? Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. So we have the initial um, start of the gospel that God is a God who saves and has a salvation plan for mankind. Hannah reflects on that. We also see that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Isn't that what we see in Jesus Christ's ministry? He came and gave us an example of that. But throughout his ministry, his earthly ministry, he reflected on that. Look at the way that he addressed the Pharisees, the proud, the arrogant. But who did he go to? The humble and the lowly. Why? Because God rejects the proud, but gives grace to the humble, and we see that in Christ. The king became a pauper and walked among us. His own people, favored people of God, rejected him. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, all had him crucified, tried to kill him. And what did God do with them? He rejected the proud. In fact, you see that even work out in an earthly sense with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. That whole system collapsed and was gone. Because God resisted the proud and grace the humble. These 11 humble men, his disciples, who all gave their lives for him. The last thing is that God protects his people. That's the gospel. We have security. Paul pointed that out as he ends his discussion in Romans 8 on God's salvation plan, he ends with, you are now secure in Christ. That's what Hannah says. That God protects his people and destroys the wicked. So you could literally share the gospel from just this psalm alone. Now that doesn't mean you wouldn't make reference to the New Testament concepts, but the gospel is contained in this passage, is it not? God is the God who saves, gives grace to those who are humble and accept him, and he'll protect them. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And like I said, I'm more and more convinced that as you look at the Old Testament, when Paul says that it was a tutor to lead us to Christ, we see that here. And so um, I love that because it, it helps us to understand that God is a consistent God from Genesis to Revelation. It is the same God 
the idea that God's a vengeful, wrathful God in the Old Testament and that the system of salvation is dead. No. Always been the same. Just further revealed as we get further along. So, I'm going to go ahead and I'm just going to rest on that. We will um, continue on through our study for probably, I'm thinking we've got about 17, 18 weeks total in the, in the study. But um, I'm, I'm hoping you guys will continue to, to, to get something out of this and, and uh, that we'll continue to grow together in Christ as we do that. So.